look forward to getting a chance to talk with Brian Gitt, who's one of the foremost advocates of nuclear power. Uh, Brian, first of all, I always appreciate you finding time, but let, let me just start with this. Do you feel vindicated? I mean, <laughs> you look at uh, even the announcement coming out of the COP28, it might be the only, you know, for people who, uh, you know, where the climate is their thing, that's got to be, to me, the most positive thing coming out of that, the finding of the recognition that nuclear power is going to be the way to go. The world is really finally waking up to the reality that the only way to really achieve zero emissions or not zero emissions, working towards lower emissions is through employing nuclear energy. And so it's it's great to see. I don't I don't feel vindicated. I mean, I think that uh, everyone obviously is doing their best with the information they have. And I think in general, um, my personal mission is just we need more energy and better energy across the board. And it's going to be kind of a stepped process to get there and excited to see more politicians coming to this understanding. But what a difference when, when you first started talking nuclear and you came out of a, you know, renewable energy, the solar background, you know, so your bona fides were terrific. Uh, but coming out of that, I, I, at least I sense a real change in attitude. Uh, but it's, it's been sort of coming in the last year and a half, I guess, or two years uh, and it was really a case of denial, which is still going on. The denialism is still going on in Germany. I, I saw, for example, uh, still opposition to nuclear. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking at Korea, Japan, for goodness sakes, uh, you know, China, of course, India, of course. So there's going to be an expl explosion of nuclear power at the very least. Yeah, we're certainly seeing this trend accelerate across the world as these policies shift and more politicians wake up and you're seeing more and more nuclear technology companies emerge and uh, get funded and various investors putting capital behind it. I think it's also important to realize, though, that not everywhere in the world is going to be appropriate to deploy nuclear power first off. I mean, certain areas in the developing world are going to need to build their economic base before they're going to be able to afford nuclear power. And so I think I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel nuclear power is absolutely the future, and I think it's, it's going to play a substantial role. But it's not everything, right? We're, we're going to need fossil fuels, for example, for, for many decades to come, especially in the developing world, to enable them to build the economic foundation to be able to afford cleaner burning, more advanced technologies like nuclear power. And that's what you're looking at in your brand new book called In the Dark. You're looking at policies. You're looking at, you know, I mean, we've been so counterproductive in so many policies. I mean, that's the bottom line. And you sort of go, what were they thinking? Whether it's Germany shutting down nuclear without the backup power ready to go, you know, that that wasn't very clever. Uh, you know, with uh, attaching one of my favorite examples is in Ontario, which has made good progress on the nuclear side. But before that, uh, in the previous government, they had all of this uh, renewable power power, uh, solar power, and then they forgot they couldn't hook it up to the grid. And we've got lots of examples of that caliber of thinking there. Is that why you wrote the book? There's still a lot of ground to cover, a lot of, uh, you know, policy sort of considerations to take into account. 47% of the world still lives in energy poverty. I mean, imagine that. That's that we have what eight billion people on the planet, so it's about three point seven billion people don't have enough energy, and about one, just shy of one billion of them don't have any electricity. Right? I mean, imagine this: you wake up in the morning, you carry a jug, you basically hike a trek an hour to go find water. You carry that jug back on your head, that forty-pound jug of water, back to your to your uh, to your family and to your hut that's made out of kind of sticks and straw and mud, and you have no toilet, very, you know, obviously very 
little sanitation practices. So you have germs spreading, all these types of things. You're cooking over a wood fire that is the equivalent of inhaling or smoking two packs of cigarettes a day just by cooking your food and heating your house. I mean, unfortunately, there's hundreds of millions of people living like this. And then there's whole spectrum, obviously, of people living in different stages of energy poverty. Not everyone is in that dire situation. But this is a catastrophic um, problem. If you and I woke up tomorrow in the state that billions of people are living in today, we'd think it was the real apocalypse. That is the apocalypse. And what I find ironic about a lot of the energy policies and climate policies is that we're ignoring the suffering of billions of people today on the hope of solving a future problem that may not even be nearly as big of a problem as, as many people imagine. And so the book is really centered on how do we fix this mis mismatch? How do we fix these energy policies that promote human flourishing and human well-being and at the same time protect our environment? I mean, no one wants to drink polluted water or breathe dirty air. All of us want a clean environment. I mean, I, th I think you go around the world and you talk to people, everyone can agree on that. It is, what is the path to get there? And currently, we're not necessarily on the correct trajectory. I've always been astounded by the way how uh, elitist the Western nations were in this regard. I mean, there's so many examples. Uh, I'm thinking Glasgow, you know, whatever that was, COP26, COP27. Uh, you know, and Prime Minister Modi of India basically said, screw you to these people because they were ignoring uh, the plight of so many, uh, you know, poverty and energy policy are absolutely go hand in hand. And yet they did something. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Was it called the Glasgow Accord where all 39 Western nations promised not to help Africa if it was fossil fuels? I mean, it really is astounding. And I think that's also coming home to roost. I, I thought there was a little more realism in COP28 because you had the uh, oil producing nations, you know, starting with Dubai, et cetera, saying, no, we're not going to sign something that says we're putting an end to fossil fuels. We don't have a transition planned out. Natural gas has an important role to play, et cetera, et cetera. But as you say, they've been blind to that, especially the impact, though, on developing nations, emerging markets. Yeah, I mean, over the since 1990 from today, so basically 30 plus years, the world has gone from relying on fossil fuels for 87% of our energy down to 82% of our energy. And that's after investing trillions and trillions of dollars in wind and solar. And I think this is at the root of the problem is that the our leaders are under this false notion that this massive investment in wind and solar technology is going to somehow allow us to get off of fossil fuels. And that's not actually happening due to the unreliable nature of them being intermittent. They don't actually replace power plants. They're additional and they can provide value in certain applications in certain markets, but they're not going to wholesale replace the existing power system. Um, and there's another big myth that I think is at the root of a lot of this. And I used to believe this myself, so I'm not casting judgment or blame on a lot of these politicians and leaders and people in power. And I call this the, the damage assumption, which is this false notion that the amount of energy that people consume is directly proportional to the amount of dam environmental damage mm. that they cause. Um, most people, if you ask them, you say, well, yeah, of course, if you use more energy, you're going to cause more environmental harm. That's actually false, and we this is this is quantified across the world that when you look 
in the poorest countries and developing nations, they have the most pollution. They're, they're cutting down their forests for heating their homes and for cooking their food. And unfortunately, all of the endangered species impacts of that deforestation. So when we look around the world and we look at who has the best quality air, the best quality water, um, and the least amount of pollution overall, it's wealthier countries. So what's the solution to this? Well, the solution is to enable and help developing countries to use more energy, not less, to an, so that they can advance and increase, go up the ladder of energy density just like we did. We started with wood and went to coal and then went to natural gas and to nuclear and the rest of the world will follow suit. I mean, again, no one wants to breathe a lot of particulates in the air if they don't have to from a coal plant. And most people will embrace these technologies that are cleaner burning with less emissions over time. But they can't just go overnight from one state to the next. There has to be some kind of building block, economic building blocks to enable that to happen. And, and that's certainly been missing from the conversation, uh, the practicality of it. It's one of, one of the things that I've certainly been critical of for years is, fine, you want to do this? Well, tell me where the, pressure, where the rare earth minerals are coming from. Where, where's your cobalt coming from? Where's all of this stuff to build that out? And, of course, it wasn't available. And, you know, that's still a huge challenge. It was just this leap to uh, net zero, sort of, as if that happens magically in some 10-year time frame, you know, and... Uh, and that's why I think the book is so welcome because it looks at a policy perspective, looks at, you know, what are, these are alternatives. This is the challenge. And until we appreciate that it is indeed a phenomenal challenge, especially, as you say, for all of the emerging markets, uh, poverty across the world, which is massive. Uh, I, I just don't see this happening. I think that's what's going to hold back the rest of it. They're not going to get cooperation, first of all. I mean, look at China's given us a pretty clear example. Yes, they like nuclear, but they like coal, too, because they are going to use energy, you know, and it just the lack of realism all the way along has and misinformation both of them have, have been the dual kind of problems for me when i look at this pro, uh, trying to go to a lower uh, carbon emission world yeah in my book that's what i try to do first mm. is to debunk the existing myths that underlie a lot of our existing policies and that's really important these are myths like fossil fuels are being phased out well as we just said they're they're not actually being phased out the fossil fuels are growing three times faster than wind and solar over the last 20 years. You just look at the data. I'm not, I'm not making up new numbers yeah. or facts. I'm just pointing to third-party credible resources, and you can see these trends across the world. So we're going to continue to need fossil fuels for decades to come for transportation, for agriculture, for industry. That doesn't mean we can't diminish it and we, that we can't use cleaner burning fuels like natural gas and nuclear power. We will. Um, but Fossil fuels aren't going anywhere is the kind of the foundation. Another myth is that solar and wind are in electric vehicles are really the only things that can save the planet, right? And that these are the best technologies. When, when you actually look at the life cycle emissions and materials use of these technologies, they're far inferior to things like cleaner burning natural gas and nuclear power and kind of walking through and quantifying those numbers um, there's another pernicious myth that nuclear power isn't safe when it's a, it is the safest form of 24 seven reliable energy that we have. And you can just look at the data on that. It's very clear in terms of when you look at <clears throat> death rates per terawatt hour produced. So when you, when you start dissecting these myths and, and looking at the underlying data, you can really start to see through them. Uh, and then the last one that I mentioned earlier, which is that using more energy damages the environment. I mean, 
we should want, our goal should not be to reduce energy. Our goal should be to accelerate and use more energy, as much energy as possible. Because as we use more energy, we ultimately will be protecting the environment, consuming fewer resources and polluting less. And so once I kind of walk through and debunk some of these underlying myths that are the foundation of various policies, then what I try to do is, okay, well, how do we actually evaluate these various energy sources? Because there's nothing that's perfect. Nuclear is not perfect. All energy sources have trade-offs. I mean, life is always about trade-offs. There's no perfect silver bullet solution. So I try to lay out, well, what are the evaluation criteria that we should be considering when we're balancing the costs and benefits of all of these different technologies? And these, in, these are broadly based in three major categories, the human factors, environmental factors, and then local feasibility factors. Because as I started off our conversation today, you can't, everything is not um, able to be built everywhere. You know, let's just take something like hydropower. You don't have the water resource everywhere, right? We, everyone loves hydro. It's a, it's a great clean resource, but it's not available everywhere that you would like to build it. Um, same thing with geothermal energy, et cetera. So you need to lay out these criteria and examples of um, human-centered criteria would be things like energy security, reliability, safety, affordability, greenhouse gas emissions, how scalable is it? These are just examples of categories. And then on the environmental side, we have to look at materials use, land use, pollution, waste, all of these things throughout the entire life cycle of the energy source. So all of these things need to be weighed and balanced as we go through. And so that's what I do in the book. I actually apply the criteria to the U.S. And it's imperfect, right? Because you even have to drill down more locally to make these decisions that, you know, what might be right in Arizona is different than New York. Um, But I think it gives a nice framework to think about and critically evaluate what energy sources provide the best path forward. But you're, it's such an important aspect that you're bringing forward, and I thought it was so worthwhile because we don't have a framework. We have not been making energy-related decisions with a broader framework. As you said, just even life cycle emissions, you know, what's the manufacturing of that? Where was the mining of that? What does that produce in the end? Uh, things like reliability clearly were not a consideration in Europe. I mean, <laughs> the fact speaks for themselves. Gee, in Germany, let's get rid of nuclear, but we actually don't have a backup. Let's support uh, Russia's, uh, Russia's energy sector instead against warnings. Uh, the list is a long one, but we have not had a framework from which to make decisions, from which to make discussions. I mean, it's been so ideologically based. And that's, I, I just thought that was an incredibly valuable contribution of the book that uh, it just helps. You know, let's get a conversation starting. Let's have a framework for it. And that's why I thought in the dark, amongst other things, though, I thought, gosh, if anyone, everyone would read that, we'd be better off in arriving at uh, energy related decisions that are efficient, effective, cost effective. The list goes on. Well, one thing I attempted to do is to distill down all of these ideas into a very short read and very understandable language without a lot of acronyms and jargon and industry, things that people just don't understand or have to invest hours and hours to research. Because I wanted someone to basically sit down and in one or two sittings in about an hour or so, be able to get a sense of this energy landscape, 
what is kind of a rational and reasonable way to approach evaluation of these things, what are some really specific examples, and just clear, un easily understood language, because there's a lot of good information out there, but it's overwhelming. A lot of it is either too technical or, or not technical enough, um, doesn't have the right citation. And I just wanted to really condense that into a very accessible format. And it, when you really dr dr drill into this data, it's, it's really eye-opening. For example, you know, when most people think of solar panels, they think, oh, that's the, the lowest CO2 emitting option in power source. Well, it's surprising when you actually drill, look beneath the hood and start looking into the data that a large solar plant emits four times more life cycle CO2 emissions than a nuclear plant on average. Now that's looking across the world on average, but it's much actually worse than that when you start drilling into it because 75% of solar panels are made in China. And when you actually look at the key components within the solar panels, like the wafers and things that are take the most energy, it's using coal fire, uh, coal fire power plants to make that stuff, that number goes up to 25 times more life cycle CO2 emissions than a nuclear power plant. Well, when you, if you were to ask your average person on the street, you know, what is the lowest CO2 option for generating power? I think your average person might say solar panels or solar energy. Yeah. When in fact, the ones that are made in China, which is almost all of them, are generating 25 times more CO2 than a nuclear power plant. So this is something that is all kind of hidden beneath the surface and is not accessible or available. So I try to condense this kind of information and put it into that more accessible format. Tell us how to get a copy of the book. Um, the, oh, I got to mention one other thing about the book. <laughs> that Brian has done this. This is a complete nonprofit deal. He ain't making any money from this. This is for his concern and advocacy over making the correct choices when it comes to power. I mean, our future depends on it. So I just wanted to make sure people knew that, Brian. Uh, congratulations for that. That's a terrific contribution to make. But uh, where can I get a copy? Well, you can just go to my website, BrianGit.com, and right there on the homepage, you, you can order a copy. As you said, I, I'm certainly not doing this to make money. I mean, in general, people don't write books to make money in general, but this is actually, I'm subsidizing this book. Um, we tried to, we designed it um, to be as inexpensive as possible to ship it. So that, and also so we could give it away to at conferences and events or for cost. So we basically are uh, providing this at cost. Uh, and not making any profit on it whatsoever because I just think it's imperative that we change the energy narrative. And we need to empower people with facts, with information, with frameworks to make better decisions around energy. And I didn't want costs or, you know, I, I don't need to make money on a book, right? I mean, this yeah. is, I'm doing fine. And I'm just really wanting to spread this information and get it out there. And so putting it in a format that, like, for example, I've had energy executives come to me just that they want to hand they want to get 50 copies or 100 copies that they can hand out at various keynote presentations they've given at conferences and things like that which is great because that's exactly what i imagined would be a perfect use of this getting in the hands of a very targeted audience of people that need to understand this information and actually are making decisions around investment in energy infrastructure, whether it's policymakers, whether it's investors, or whether it's corporate leaders. Those are kind of the people that ultimately we need to influence. Well, let me just say this. That's at Brian Gitt 
on Twitter, which you can get at BrianGitt.com. Just remember, Git is spelled G-I-T-T, two T's, Brian Git. And Brian, as soon as we're done here, I'll order my next 50. I'm telling you right now, I will. <laughs> oh, thank I you. I... This is the same, same passion for educating. The more educated you are, obviously, the better decisions. And we found out in the last couple of years, if we didn't know, man, we better start making the right energy decisions. And, uh, and I just think an informed public. So I congratulate you for that. But I guarantee it. I'll be buying the next 50. Brian, <laughs> thank you for taking your time. Thank you, Mike. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's always great talking with you. Wait a minute. I just had an idea. We're going to give away the 50. I'm buying them, Brian. I promise the 50 copies of it. But we'll give it to the next 50 people who sign up for five minutes with Mike. And it's easy to do. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you'll see up top there, your little click on. You click on the free e-service button there and just sign up. The next 50 people who do that, well, we're going to get a copy of Brian's book, In the Darkness. It's, uh, as I say, I've really thought it was a valuable uh, book, and he's done a great job of making it brief, making it uh, uh, understandable and affordable, all of those things. But it's really affordable here. It's going to be free. So go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on the uh, free e-service button up there, sign up. The first 50 people to do that will get five minutes with Mike. And anyone else who does it, well, don't worry, you get the free e-service.